0: To another episode of the Ladies That UX Podcast, I'm Julia Putnina, senior UX consultant and volunteer at the Ladies That UX community in the UK. In today's episode, we're going to meet Julia Debarry, who is a UX generalist and a highly respected UX designer and educator with over 20 years of experience in a variety of tech industries. Currently, Julia is sharing her knowledge through teaching, mentoring, and creating resources that help not just women but anyone looking to get started or advance in the field of UX design sounds very interesting. Shall we meet her? This episode was sponsored by DeployMe, specialist in recruiting UI/UX designers. Welcome to the latest UX in English podcast, a friendly, welcome and collaborative organization of intelligent and curious women who push UX boundaries, develop skills and promote talents by supporting each other.
1: Welcome, Julia. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here and I appreciate the opportunity and I look forward to sharing what I can that I hope will be useful to other people. We would like to know your story from the beginning. Can you tell me about your journey into the UX design? Yeah, it's interesting because people ask me this. I got a lot of questions from UX people who are UX transitioners and transitioning from a previous career, and sometimes I feel a little bad because I'm not a transitioner. I basically started right out of college. I went to two different colleges, like one right after another, and I'm probably the only not smart person. And then I got two bachelor's degrees. I didn't think to like go further up the chain, but my first degree was in something called human ecology, which is actually really interesting because what's really related to UX. Basically, I studied how humans interact with environments, whether it's environmental like nature or Housing, and so I took everything from philosophy to psychology to urban planning. It was a very interesting art kind of thing program. But when I graduated, I didn't know what UX is, I never heard anything. It was the 90s, no idea. And then I was like, I don't know, computers are pretty hot. So, like, I went back to another school. It's called Expression, it got bought by another school. It's still around in Emeryville, California, and they have a few other campuses. But what was interesting, and and I apologize, I'm gonna laugh a little, but it was a boot camp way before we've heard of boot camps. And that's not even what they called it. And the thing that's funny is, it was 16 months of a boot camp So you hear people going through 12, you know, 15, 24 weeks. It was 16 months, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. classes, and then homework that was due the next morning. So I probably averaged four hours of sleep every night during those six months. It was intense, crazy. There were 14 people in my class. I was the first class in this experimental program. But I learned a lot. It was digital technology. I learned everything from how to make special effects for movies to using Flash and coding action script to developing movies and doing green screens and things like that and 3D animation. So it's really interesting. And then I went to an internship in the Netherlands and had a lovely time. It was amazing and I wanted to stay. But then student loans came due and I told my boss and he was like, What are you talking about? And I was like, I have to pay for school. So I was making equivalent of like minimum wage kind of thing, I paid my rent and food and that was it. And I had to explain and he was like really struggling understanding this concept of having to pay for school. And so unfortunately I left, I came back to the States. I went to San Francisco where I grew up in the area and this is old fashioned, I was literally looking for jobs like in the newspaper or like talking to people and someone was like, oh, there's a job, we call them interaction designers, called, applied to interviews and I had the job. Like that's how easy, I know it's horrifying because like nowadays, like I recently went through the job process myself and it was eight interviews and you're like design challenges and like all this crazy stuff. I showed my portfolio to my manager and I had one other conversation with another teammate and then they said, you're hired right there. So that was also though, keep in mind the dot-com bubble for people who are not familiar, it was insane. Like the joke is you could walk into an office and say, I know how you could use a computer and you'd get a job. It's definitely a lot different than it is now. Um, The other thing that I'm really proud about that job is we were building what we would now call a SaaS application, which was not a term back then at all. We actually called it an ASP or Application Service Provider. It was a subscription-based model where you could make your own website using the browser. Think Squarespace or Webflow or something like that that. It was all drag and drop. You can make, you know, for small businesses or individuals who want to make like their own company websites or, you know, portfolio website. And I designed a lot of the application and the functionality. I did a lot of coding at the time too. I worked there for three years. And then I just hopped around different jobs in San Francisco for 20 years because I didn't know like why I call myself a generalist. I didn't know what was the best thing to do. There were so many opportunities I did like research. I did UX design end to end. I worked for small companies. I worked for enterprises. I worked freelance. I worked as a contractor. And I just couldn't really find my right fit in all these tech companies. I've tried UX writing. I've tried design program manager. And I like all of these things, but I haven't found this is what I want to do. I love UX. I would definitely be one of those people that I would do it without being paid. I want to die doing UX. I've fairly recently come to the conclusion, I think, but the thing is, is I want to be a service designer, not a UX designer. And the reason, and I know it's like flitting hairs and like different terms for the same thing. And we have a million terms for our jobs. But the reason I say that is I'm very systems oriented and I'm very focused on the whole experience, not just the digital. In many jobs, I'm always asking, well, where does this data come from? Who's in putting the data? What company are we using? What is the API? What is this? and What is that? And people would tell me, stop asking questions. That's not part of your job. Just design the interface or like the flows or do some research or usability testing. And I'm like, no, I need how all of it goes together. The back end of what's going on in the middle and then the front. And so I knew about service design, but it didn't really click until recently that that's what I would call myself. That's sounds very amazing
0: and exciting as well, like how you had so many two bachelor degrees first of all and then this kind of crash well, not crash course, but 16 months, (laughs) crash course, intensive study of digital, anything digital, that sounds so interesting. And then you have this job with two interviews and boom, you got a job in 90s, that bubble thingy. It sounds like an impressive journey and you've definitely met loads of people, you've worked with loads of people, you went to this 16 month study, 14 people class or group. So let's talk about a bit of challenges as well. So what kind of challenges have you faced as a woman? in tech industry and how did you overcome that
1: yeah that's a really interesting question i think a lot of people will relate so probably first and this included school but i want to start from like after graduating my first few jobs all the way till i would say like 2011 i was very quiet never spoke up never led meetings if i did have a suggestion i would tell someone else on my team and then like have them make the suggestion was super super shy super quiet like no one wants to listen to what i have to say i remember in one place was when twitter came out and part of our jobs was to create a twitter account and tweet so you know we can like get the company out there and stuff and all i would do is tweet quotes from books because then they could see at least i was doing something that i didn't have to actually say i mean they were ux related but i never spoke up i never had that confidence myself in my work I think part of it might have been just because it had been so easy to get that first job, and I was a little like, why did that happen? And then, you know, I struggled to get other jobs, just like people in the past. I've had good experiences and bad experiences, and I was so focused on learning so many different things. Like, I remember at one job, people are like, just stay in your lane. You're just supposed to do the design. Don't ask about research. Don't ask about usability testing. Someone else will do that. Just stay in your lane. And that really frustrated me and so I really felt like okay I just won't say anything I won't speak up and then uh, I was like I think 2011 and I got a job in an enterprise company called VMware and it's a little odd because VMware has a huge centralized UX team I think they have like 80 people huge but I didn't get hired on that team I got hired on a special project and they specifically said they did not want someone on their own UX team because they felt like they all thought the same way and they wanted someone with a different way of thinking and that was one of those ones like yeah I had five interviews I think I had a design challenge I had to show my portfolio stuff and I got the job and I had a boss but he was so it was just me and my boss as far as like the design team but my boss was definitely full-on visual designer like I don't even know if I could say UI I would just say like visual designer and so I kept asking like what about research and what about this and he was like I don't know like, just figure it out and so basically I felt for like a year that like I ran the full design process for a team of 45 developers eight product managers six QA it was a team of a hundred people and basically I was the only actual like UX person and I did the end-to-end process so I think that gave me a lot of confidence and it was one of those products that was brand new someone higher up had this amazing idea that we're making this new product that like no one's ever done before I really hurt their feelings when I did a competitive analysis and found out that wasn't remotely true you know I think I just gained a lot of confidence from that and then also in classic product development or whatever you want to say that we do they're like okay well we're not the only people doing this so let's throw 10 more features at this product so it'll be special and different than all the other products out there that just became a total feature factory and so I just realized that's not logically clear thinking they're really Acting emotionally instead of how are we going to sell this product or make something that people actually want and what's interesting I don't know if they still do it VMware would actually do this thing is if someone had an idea for a product and it's a couple months in they write a press release ahead of time and send it out as sort of motivation to the team deliver and we had to rewrite so many press releases because things were changing it was pretty funny so I think that's what gave me the confidence and then you know I think as women we definitely have that thing men talk a lot and then I mean you know I'm making a generalization I'm not saying every single person is like this or every single man but they tend to talk a lot they tend to think they're right I think one thing there is doing this whole end-to-end process and feeling really happy with the results and feeling really confident be able to influence people on the product worked really well with the engineers and there was one woman engineer and and 44 men. You know, I got along with everybody though. Like we collaborated really well. They even said like I was the best designer they'd ever collaborated with. And I think part of that was I was willing to listen. And then I did have some programming background. And so I wasn't blowing them off. Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. So that gave me the confidence. And then moving on from that job, I just felt really confident. And I was like, okay, I'm willing to speak up now. And then you get those men though, who won't let you like my next job. I'm not Another male boss who was a visual designer, not even UI, visual designer, and like he's your boss. And I was like, I know so much more than you do, but then really having to think like fragile egos and stuff. And I think in that space, so like 2012 to 2016, I was really learning how to adapt the way I speak and the way I present information to a male audience. So it took practice as it wasn't something I figured out. I made mistakes. Um, I'll tell an embarrassing story although it wasn't a guy. I was working somewhere and it was a woman PM and she just, you know, someone who's just not good at her job and I've never done this in my life. This was so out of character. I was having some personal stress at home and just lost it and I literally yelled at her in front of the entire office about what a terrible PM she was and like how she should be embarrassed to even call herself a PM. And that was a real wake up call for me to also talk about this later. Like, not letting your emotions, like, you know it, but then when it actually happens and you make a mistake like that, don't let your emotions confuse your decisions or make you react in a way that doesn't reflect well on your team. I was leading a team at the time and stuff. And so, like, I immediately went and told my boss, who was the director, that I, like, made a mistake and I apologized. And, like, nothing ever really came of it, but I immediately was don't let your personal life. I think as a woman, we can tend to be a little more emotional than men. I've cried at work like 20 freaking times over the years, you know? But just learning that, like, that's not a weakness. I think that's I was learning in that time. It's not a weakness. It's, like, my own strength and my willingness to care and be passionate and want things to go well. Whereas men are more not, I don't know, use the word logical. I don't mean that in a negative way against women, but, like, I mean, I just see this with my husband all the time he's like well this is the solution you just do it what are you talking about why do you care why are you crying about this and it's like we're just two different ways of thinking and learning how to come together and collaborate on your thinking is something I've really learned over the years. Wow that was a lot
0: to take in in a good way okay thank you for sharing that at first I was a little bit surprised how you said until 2011 you had that kind of struggle with this sort of being woman in tech I feel like 2011 is a bit over. Already too late that that changed. I thought it would have changed earlier. <laughs> it's good that it's changing. And uh, it feels like you were almost dropped in a deep end in that VMware company. Yeah. There is this team of, uh, well, not team, they have 80 people, but then they gave you a project and you were doing it and they're just like, just do it. <laughs> and do you feel like that? I don't know if you can think about it. If you would not have this kind of deep end, just do it option or project, do you feel like it would take a little bit? longer to sort of get that confidence
1: yeah I definitely think so it was scary it's that thing like don't be afraid of being afraid and just sort of like I made mistakes it wasn't perfect the team grew as I was there which was really helpful yeah it was just like No one else is gonna do it, so I gotta figure this out. It doesn't mean I did everything correctly, but I did some things really well. I think one or two things I'll call out just because I'm proud of them myself is, well, one way I was lucky. So the software, whatever you wanna call it, we were building was for administrators. And so VMware is like 40,000 people. And so I could just like go on Slack and be like, hey, I need five people to do usability testing. And we were very agile, like traditionally agile, not this water agile fall thing. It was, we all had agile training. It was, this is the velocity and points and all this stuff. And so I set up basically every two weeks on a Wednesday, I did usability testing. I just set that up. It was just standard and I just tested whatever I had. So I'm really proud of myself for that. And I learned a lot. And then I'm also proud of, so I did interviews and like, you know, research and all that stuff. And I put it every single thing on the wiki like I had the largest part of the wiki for our project than anyone I was super transparent about everything I learned and like where you could find more information and why I made the decisions I did and I think that also helped like especially PMs begin to trust me and stuff like that. Those are great examples to share and should be proud (laughs) what you've done. So a few things
0: to take from this like as if learning a little bit or advice I guess for people I feel like one of the things is adapt the way you speak. So being woman in tech, I'm talking about. <laughs> so adapt the way you speak. Having emotions is not weakness. Control when you need to speak up or not. I guess knowing when to apologize as well to things. And just now you were talking about this kind of wiki that you were making. It feels like attention to details is what again helped you to gain that confidence and people listening to you. Yeah. That's good. And talking about advices or insights, is there anything else you would like to maybe share with us for all the other women that are looking to break into the X industry? Any practical advice or insights from your learnings?
1: Yeah. So one thing I would say is definitely learn to articulate your thinking, which is funny because you're like, duh, of course, why wouldn't I do? that. But for example, I was trained to always write annotations on my wireframes and to do them as I'm making the wireframes. I've definitely been in situations where someone else saw the wireframes and they handed me to do the annotations. And I was like, I don't know what you're thinking. How am I supposed to like figure that out? And the reason I say that and people are like, oh, well, I'll just do a prototype. You can't do a prototype for every possible state, every possible use case. It's much better. And I also find it a lot easier to include accessible accessibility callouts, then like, I'm not going to spend time prototyping all these accessibility issues. So I think that one thing is that helps you articulate why you made the decision you did when you need to talk to engineers and PMs. And so that helps you. It's like a learning experience. So I think that really helped me because I've done that my whole life. And then of course, I'm going to recommend, I've actually read it twice, Top Gravers Articulating Design Decisions has a lot of good advice. And I definitely recommend like, that's one of my top books that that I recommend. If you're not familiar with wireframe annotations and why would I do that? How is that helpful? Communicating Design by Dan M. Brown is a good recommendation as well. I might be a little horrified. It came out in 2006, but that was like my Bible and I still live by that book. It's really, really clear about why you do what you do.
0: Amazing. Thank you for sharing all the books as well. It feels like in UX, usually people read a lot of books because there are so many. And- thank you for sharing right so i'm gonna change a little bit topic now from this kind of element but as i mentioned in the intro you are also an educator so how has your role as an educator influenced your perspective on UX design?
1: That's a really, really good question. And so like I talked about in the beginning where I was, I worked at startups, I work at enterprises, I did like a million different UX jobs because I'm exaggerating, obviously the different UX jobs. I was really trying to understand like the whole UX, like what is it made of? Like every little niche and like every little piece, like you talk about, oh, I do design systems or I'm a UX writer, or, I do whatever. And I'm going to be like, how does that all interconnect? And like I'm very systems oriented like I said so then in 2016 before that I taught some I remember leaving a job I think it was at Dell and I'm like I'm gonna teach full-time I'm just leaving standard corporate America and I'm gonna go just teach full time. I started at General Assembly, (laughs) not my favorite. Now I've taught at probably like 14 different boot camps over the years. And I was once again, I was like, okay, so I have this breadth of knowledge that I've really tried to grow and learn. How are we teaching the new people coming into our industry, which I think is very important. And this is probably the thing I'm most passionate about. I finally realized once I started doing it, this is what I love more than anything is teaching. One reason, I've done so many is I can't find a boot camp that I think is that good. Honestly, it's all very high level. It glosses over things. It teaches many, many boot camps, teach like it's a recipe. You do research, then you synthesize, then you ideate, and then you do your how might we, and then you do this, and then you do that. There's a funny sort of joke that I tell people I can recognize which boot camp you we went to by just looking at one case study. That's how many portfolios I look at. And yeah, so I've been teaching for a long time. I really like it. But a lot of them, they're businesses. These boot camps are businesses and it's just I don't know I had this like dream that it was more like public education and like oh no we care about producing good UX designers no they don't you know one thing if someone is thinking general assembly they'll have you do a design challenge it means nothing like you could totally screw it up if you have money they'll take you any boot camp they'll take you thank you so
0: so you mentioned loads of examples already accomplishments as well. You were really proud on what you've done at VMware, which sounds seriously impressive, and the other jobs. Could you tell us about a project or accomplishment, something extra maybe, that you consider the most significant in your career?
1: Well, definitely the VMware project was definitely most significant. Another one I would say is, like, I talked about that first job I got, which was actually a startup. There were a million startups back in the dot-com bubble. It was like nothing new. And just a funny Little story, and why I feel like that was an accomplishment and it really affected my future way of thinking about work is I've always been very studious and learning a lot and very high productivity. Sorry, I'm not saying that word right. So, this first job, I got it, it was great, you know. 50, 60 of us. Half, six months in, they laid everybody off. Dot-com bubble burst. And like, pink slip parties, office furniture, computers on the street, people carrying boxes home. It was just like, ugh. I got laid off. Just like everyone else and then um, it was weird though they laid us off but they did not close the company so the CEO and the CFO stayed around but they laid off all the employees and you may be thinking like how is the job gonna work like how does the company work like that well remember we were subscription-based so we were sort of almost self-sufficient because we already had people paying monthly subscription fees so they just weren't gonna add any new features or anything two weeks later I got a a call asking if I wanted to come back at one third of my salary. (laughs) I was desperate like anyone because seeing everyone get laid off and I said yes. I ended up working there for three years, just the three of us. I worked from home, we lost our office. I was working from home, you know, like we've all done it now in the pandemic, using AOL Messenger, some janky Logitech webcam, my computer, and had to buy my own software on my computer and i learned a lot because (laughs) i was the only one left and i was basically taking over all the jobs that the ceo didn't do so i did everything from figuring out what the heck a firewall is and why it went down and i was up 24 eight hours trying to figure it out with a physical book because I didn't have internet access inside the, what it's called, the place where all the servers are, the co-location server. I can't remember what it's called, they're just millions of servers. It's a big cement thing and you can't have any internet connection. So going to borders and buying books and like working, I worked 18 hours a day, seven days a week because I was just doing so many jobs and then also I took a second job at the same time I worked at Adobe and uh, what's funny is that they weren't supposed to know that I was still doing this other job, but the CEO worked there as well. It's this whole like complicated thing, but I would have to answer customer support calls and you know, you might go into like a little office or something, but it was like so many people I would hide under my desk and try and talk really quietly to answer customer support calls. And so just some of the craziness I dealt with for three years that in a way gave me confidence. Maybe not as a UX designer, but like you could throw anything my way and I could take care of it. I mean there are so many more stories I can say of some of the like most insane things I did. I mean not insane in a bad way, but just like I was twenty-four years old and I was basically helping running this company, get us new customers, building programming, wireframing, doing everything, figuring out how servers work. And, you know, I learned PHP and like all these other C sharp languages and stuff which I had no idea of. And just
0: figured it out. Wow Uh, that sounds crazy in a good way as well. First of all I don't know how you found time to do two jobs based on what you just said but also you were doing literally learning on the job that people say nowadays but also so much knowledge you have so much knowledge now based on all your experiences so it goes a little bit into my next question. We mentioned earlier at the start of podcast that you call yourself UX generalist and you did say that you were just doing different jobs, UX writing, research, design, you name it, (laughs) everything. So could you elaborate a little bit more on this term, UX generalist, because it still is around, people are still using it. So what do you think about this term?
1: Yeah, no, it's funny because it used to be a lot more popular in the early 2000s, like mid 2000s, and now I hardly ever hear it. And when I say it to like hiring managers, they sort of give me this poo-poo look like we don't want a generalist unless you're working at a really tiny startup. And I just didn't know what to call myself because I can do like so many different related jobs in UX that I'm like jack of all trades, but I don't want to use the word jack of all trades, you know, like a little bit of everything UX. And it's funny, I'll talk sometimes and they're like to people and they'll be like, but don't you you know, want like real depth and you know, like that whole T-shaped thing and I'm like I feel I have a ton of depth with like really specific stuff like wireframing and user flows and like that and information architecture like that section I could write a book on that no problem I feel like I have some depth I'm not a total lightweight and just here and there so that's why I use the term but I definitely noticed in the hiring process especially like the larger company you go for they don't want a generalist they want a specialist and an Unfortunately, if you're just transitioning, you're like, I don't know what that is. How do you like, how do you want me to answer that question? Like if you're just starting out. And so I think this use that as a catch all term, but I actually keep a spreadsheet and I'm currently at 78 terms for in general for our job in general, like just using UX as an umbrella. So I really feel like it doesn't matter what you call yourself. And then one little tip I'll give like for, you know, if you're applying for a job is like your LinkedIn, you can only. Do so much. But for your resume, I always change. So the top has my name, excuse me, and then underneath it is like the title. I always change that title to match exactly the title of the job description just for like keyword matching. And I've even had it say something like really dumb because that's what they call this job. <laughs> and then the same with your LinkedIn. You do not need to call yourself the actual title you were called at work like that. Use that to tell your story. No one checks on it. If you wanted my actual title at VMware, it was Staff Engineer 3, nothing to do with They didn't have design titles. They have like five titles, and that's it. They might have changed now, but...
0: Uh, first of all, I'll be keeping an eye on that book that you will write up on IA. I'm really interested on in that. And I really like your two tips as well. Like you were saying, that I've seen there are loads of titles on UX. Indeed, it's becoming crazy a lot bit even. But it, I like how you said that on CV, change Change the title every time for
1: that job description you're applying for. It's simple as I have thousands of copies of my resume just for it. That's like the one thing. Because remember, I worked as a recruiter for a while. I don't know how bots are. All it did was wait resumes, but we have this like ancient program from the 80s. But in the end, most of the time, unless you're really low-weighted, a human looks at that. And as a recruiter, you usually have a checklist of what the hiring manager wants. You just want to make it as easy as possible for them to be like, oh, you have the same title as the job. Check. The other thing I do is I change the language in my resume to match the language of the job description. So like, there was something the other day and it's just like not a word I would have ever used. And it's like stuff I've done, but it was like really weirdly worded through that, like in the section in my resume where like, would have called for it. You know, don't make things up, don't lie, but the wording matching the job description is really important, and then the order they list those responsibilities is the top are the most important, and then they get less important as you work your way down. So if you're like, I can't do all of these, it's way too hard. Just focus on like the first three or five, and that can be something to just help you get through. Because remember, your portfolio and your resume are marketing documents and that helps you get through to the recruiter.
0: You're advertising yourself. Yep, exactly. 100%. Brand yourself. Okay. Well, we talked about loads of different changes. <laughs> and with over 20 years of experience that you have, you must have seen lots of changes in the UX industry. But let's talk about the future. Are there any top trends changes that we should look all look out for in the near future? What do you think?
1: Yeah. I mean, you're not going to be shocked about this one, but AI, but one of the things like, I'm not the kind of person like, oh, AI is going to take our jobs. I'm not remotely worried at all. What I do think it's gonna be more like how to use AI to make certain parts of your job go more quickly. And part of that is how to write good prompts. And I have actually seen a few jobs, AI engineering prompt writer, like that's a job now. Like, really? So I think you can just learn playing around with different AI systems because they're all a little bit different, even though they're large language models. But like, what do you ask and how does it respond? And then keep practicing. It's funny, I was reading an article on LinkedIn that someone says they use it a lot for like generating ideas. I guess I found that a little strange just personally because I never have any trouble generating ideas. You throw me a blank piece of paper and I'm like scribbling all over the place. But I can certainly see like other people having that it could be good for that. Yeah, I feel like it'll speed up certain parts of our job, but then I hope it'll give us more time to then focus and think more critically on the more important pieces.
0: Perfectly said. I couldn't
1: agree more.
0: It's almost like AI becomes our
1: assistant. Yes, exactly.
0: Do those small bits, works, whatever. And then, as you said, focus on the main thing for us the users and thinking, idea, solutionizing, and all that stuff. Right.
1: I guess one other thing I want to add, as you said that, and I keep on saying, I also like to remind people like, I think we maybe know it, but it doesn't like click. Remember, the AI language models are getting stuff from the internet. So that's really bi- Biased. And as a woman, it's coming in as white male bias. So you may ask it something, like generate some ideas, but those are like not fully representative of the population. Um, Something about women in silence and it talks so much about male bias. I think it's really important to read and understand, you know, other people's perspectives. And so that's something, I can't remember if there's a question here, like learning a lot. Learning for me isn't always like, oh, I need to go learn a new skill like UX writing. It's learning about people and not just like, psychology, which I do learn a lot. I watch TikTok on a regular basis to see how different people in the world are living and thinking. I use AI. There's a thing called the human library where you can quote unquote check someone out for a half an hour like a book and just ask them questions. I hadn't heard of it before. I was in Thailand and I saw it and I was lucky to squeeze in and I asked Buddhist monk about the meaning of life you know you can ask anything it's just whatever their topic it doesn't have to be to be regular people like I just spoke to a lady who's living in Paris for five years who came over from Nigeria and just like what was her experience like so learning isn't like oh it has to be this technical skill but how can you expand your thoughts and your understanding amazing and uh, my next question was about how you keep
0: updated yourself and learning so you just answered it thank you and uh, thank you for mentioning human library you are the second person who I heard mentioning it so at least (laughs) two people now but it feels like it's something should be more known I guess especially for us UX people
1: that's a really good idea I think yeah we need to push that forward yeah. yeah, because it sounds like you just
0: spoke to random people in a way like Buddhists and uh, the Haitians like totally different people. It's almost like if you need some kind of living I think it's called living experience lived in experience people you can chat to them. So yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah.
1: And I like it because it's not like a research interview you know where you have your script and stuff like that. It's just chatting like you would with a friend or something or just learning about people. And I'm learning a lot from you today <laughs> so, thank you for sharing
0: things right and talking about learning a little bit so you did mention boot camps so I'm gonna go back to that a little bit so there are now a wide range of UX education platforms and we also seen well at least I've seen in UK that the universities are offering UX courses most likely globally <laughs> and at different levels bachelor
1: master's maybe there's PhD yep actually the royal college of art in london offers a phd there we go in your view what are the differences
0: between going to the university or university route versus these boot camps that you mentioned already or maybe versus self-learning through online tools or books or talking to humans
1: i really think you know so i would say the university well maybe not in europe but in america the biggest thing is university is just way more expensive and way more time consuming and normally i'd be like oh but you'll get a better education but I've recently met some people who recently graduated with a bachelor's and I was like hey I don't necessarily think you got a better education (laughs) it's not but I think it's a very U.S. thing I wouldn't say that's true of other countries so university colleges time consuming and money but also very good with depth and accountability so I think that's good and you'll have more in-depth projects I think as well boot camps shorter time frame so that's why I think people are just like, yeah, I'll just learn this stuff and I'll get a job. Not true. I wish people would be way more aware of this. They're faster. They teach you high level. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm not saying don't go to a boot camp, but just be eyes open and very aware of what you're going to get. It's an overview of UX and all the different generalist things I'm talking about. If you're looking for a boot camp, and obviously, you know, price is a big concern. used to work at Flatiron. I just looked up their latest price. $18,000 for 15 weeks of a bootcamp. I got a master's degree. That's almost double what my master's cost and I'm like that's ridiculous. (laughs) Like don't pay for that. One thing I think they also have with bootcamps is they do have a lot of them. Not all of them have these job guarantees within six months but take that with a grain of salt. That means that they're checking in on you. You have to do all these specific little tasks that they tell you to do. They check in with you every week, and then it only applies to certain metro areas. It's not like, oh, if you lived in like the middle of nowhere, Midwest, Kansas in the United States, that counts. So I think it's just like the quick fix our boot camps, but you can make it work. It's a really good, like, overview, get you started, get you, like, oh, I maybe am way more interested in research or I'm way more interested in UI design or. I want to be a generalist. So I think they can be good for that, but just depends on how much money. A lot of them do give out a few scholarships each cohort. So don't not try because of the money, but something to keep in mind. And then don't expect a job right after. I would say it can take, in this market, I would expect a year to get a job after a bootcamp. And then the other thing I'd recommend after a bootcamp, you have a lot more work to do. A lot more. Very few of them have well-honed career services. They're just like some people they picked up off the street to help you with your resume. And so you have a lot of work to do. You know, you probably heard getting the real-world projects. There's a lot of apprenticeships and a lot of people who, you know, now that there's been a lot of layoffs who are doing coaching and stuff for UX. So get a coach or a mentor or Tech Fleet is a good place to get like real-world projects. There's a few other places as well, Bite Size UX. Volunteering, I did like early in my career, I used Taproot Foundation to get volunteer projects. You can use volunteer match. Um, There's a lot of places. The thing with volunteer projects, I love them. I wanna help and do good, but they're really disorganized. And like, it's not like, oh, I'm gonna have a project done in a couple weeks. It's gonna be a couple months just because you're not a high priority. And then self-learning, I think that's fine. The hardest thing, A, it's the cheapest, but B, the hardest thing is accountability. So if you're not self-motivated, I think that's obviously an issue. And then the other thing I think is you don't know what you don't know. So how are you gonna like know what to go learn? There's lots of not great stuff out there. One thing you can do is download syllabi from all the different boot camps and use that as a starting point because they'll tell you at least like the topics and stuff. Coursera, I mean, go ahead take the UX Coursera course. I think it's free or like $50 or something. I can tell you some things it tells you is, I would say, incorrect from a UX point of view. Its User flows are absolutely incorrect, but it gives you a quick overview. It's cheap, and then you can know like where to focus your energy. Because there's so many resources out there to learn UX and a lot of free, that that's making companies not value us as much. Because it can be like, well, anyone can learn UX. So unless you work at some fang company, how do I know that you're actually in good even though I am honestly anti-fang companies but I think it is sort of a double-edged sword like yes you learned what you need to learn really quickly but then so did 50 million other people and how are you gonna stand out and uh, something
0: to think about. Lots to think here about. (laughs) It feels like university and boot camp your suggestion is of course is research first. Yep before you apply of course and it depends what you need at your stage in life where you are
1: right yeah
0: is it university or boot camp like specific like research boom quickly six weeks whatever it is
1: yeah exactly
0: yeah sounds good and the self-learning it's quite an interesting point you mentioned about like that it's devalues almost UX that anybody can do
1: free UX courses or keep ones you know well I wouldn't say it's just self-learning I would also say it's the boot camps as well Mm -hmm. but I mean I've met some great people who self-learned and got great jobs like I'm not saying none of these don't do them just go in like you said do your research ahead of time really focus on your end goal and what you need to get there and amazing tip from you was to
0: go and look at syllables (laughs) on boot camps or unis uh, for your self-learning and build your own learning (laughs) process amazing great so we are nearing the end of our episode and uh, we talked a lot. You shared so much that anybody listening to this podcast can relate to and also learn from you and there's so many tips and also suggestions of the books. But, because we are almost at the end, would you like to give a message to the people who are listening? What's the best piece of advice you've ever received that you'd like to pass
1: on to other women in UX Design? And This one actually shocked me. I just got this fairly recently and it wasn't directly to me but I heard it and it spoke to me and I was like oh crap I've been saying this for years and we hear this a lot in UX so this is why I want to call it out it's a teeny bit long so I hope that's okay follow your passion is the absolute worst career advice you can receive it's a privileged message not all people can afford it assumes we'll only have one passion in life it assumes passions don't change with time it assumes we already know what our passion is It gives the impression that passion should come with ease, organically or magically, that it's just there and will just naturally be good at it. Just because you have a passion for something does not mean that you are good at it. Once you shift your life's passion into a job, it just becomes a job and something you must beat doing on a day-to-day basis to collect the paycheck. Instead, commit to learning and relearning what energizes and drains you. By dedicating yourself to what sparks your interest and what doesn't, you can more easily align with a successful career path that highlights your true talents. Sorry, that was sort of long.
0: (laughs) Long, but very insightful. And I don't even have a word to say. (laughs) It's like, as you were saying, shocking.
1: Yeah, in a good way. Like I literally gave a speech in college. I don't know. We didn't really have valedictorians, but something along those lines. And I remember giving a speech and my first sentence was, follow your passion and you will not fail. And now I look back at that. I'm like, oh my God. I mean, I was like 20 years old, but still I'm like, oh my God, that was the worst advice i've
0: ever given but that's a learning now yeah i learned and from now we change this (laughs) it's not one passion (laughs) and it's now going to be on a podcast so hopefully it goes wider (laughs) to the world Uh, this advice and thank you for sharing that as well and if someone listening wants to get in touch with you what is the best place to reach out to you
1: linkedin i'm on there way too much little addicted there have a problem i do usually like don't accept like things really easily so you just need my email which is just jdabari at gmail.com my first initial last name at gmail.com you can email me directly you can put that in linkedin send me a message you can send me a connection request i think without my email just you have to say like why you're connecting and then i'm all over the place so you can easily probably find me great yeah so loads of options for people to reach out to you so cheers
0: yeah well thank you for this amazing chat and it's time to say goodbye
1: All right. Well, thank you very much, Julia. It was a joy to talk to you. And it was so fun to say Julia and Julia.
0: Yes. Thank you, Julia. It was lovely to talk to you as well. And uh, I'm going to leave this with loads of thoughts that I need to organize in my head now. But thank you. And
1: thank you everyone for listening as well. Thank you all. I hope you all are successful in your future, whatever that may be. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
0: We ended our chat today with Julia Debari, an amazing lady, and we hope you enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions, questions, or contributions, please contact us on the website ladies.ux.com. This episode was produced by Ladies.UX, edited by Luciana Porasca, and sponsored by DeployMe, recruiter specialist in UX designers.